If you would, open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Today we'll be looking at verses 38 through 42 of Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. As we've seen in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus contrasts the original and true intent of God's law with what the people had been taught over the years. In the passage we saw last week, we saw that our speech is to be marked by honesty and simplicity. Simply let your yes be yes and your no, no. Honesty and truthfulness are in fact the point of God's law. And I want to be careful because I think what we saw last week, in my mind, has gone in so many different ways of, in terms of application. Um, but I think the bottom line is that we are to speak the truth. We are to be honest. We are to be simple and not be flowery necessarily. But again, it's not against metaphoric language or anything like that. It is simply that we are to tell the truth. Now, having said that, um, we find something really interesting in Matthew 11. The disciples came and asked him, that is, they asked Jesus, and asked, uh, why do you speak to the people in parables? One might say, why don't you just let your yes be yes and your no, no? He replied, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. That is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. And them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, you will ever be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. There, there seems to be a principle in Scripture when it comes to speaking the truth of the gospel. That if somebody is open to the truth, this truth is spoken very plainly. But if someone is hard-hearted or does not want to hear, then the gospel is not spoken in such a clear way. And as fascinating as that is, I don't think that has anything to do with what we looked at last week. What Jesus is talking about is honesty. We are to be honest with one another. And we are not to somehow cover up. Well, first of all, we're not supposed to be dishonest. But we're not to cover up our dishonesty by using various oaths. By saying, I'm sweary, I swear to God I'm telling you the truth. When in fact, we may not be telling the truth. Now we come to the last two contrasts here in Matthew chapter 5. One author has written about this. The two final contrasts bring us to the highest point of the Sermon on the Mount, for which it is both admired and most resented, namely the attitude of total love which Christ calls us to show toward the one who is evil. We will see this in verse 39. And our enemies. We will see the Lord willing next week. Nowhere is the challenge of the sermon greater 
Nowhere is the distinctiveness of the Christian counterculture more obvious. Nowhere is our need of the power of the Holy Spirit, whose first fruit is love, more compelling. I think I would say that maybe in the first four contrasts, you know, as, as tough as they are, we could swallow hard and say, I can do this. What we're going to look at today, and Lord willing, what we're going to look at next week, I know it is the truth. This is what Jesus said. And yet, it is extremely difficult. In fact, impossible apart from the work of the Spirit. In the previous contrast, which we've looked at in the past four Sundays, it dealt with the rights of others. How they are to be treated with respect. They're not to be murdered, obviously, but they're not to be, del- be del- uh, belittled in our speech toward them or in our thoughts of them. They're not to be treated as objects, to be lusted after or to be discarded once we get tired of them, as we saw in the case of divorce. They are to have the security. People have the right to believe that we are telling them the truth. They should have the confidence that when we say yes, we mean yes, and when we say no, we mean no. But now we come to these last two contrasts, and they deal with our rights. We've been talking about how to treat other people, but how are people supposed to treat us? I am not to belittle or humiliate or insult another person, but what if I'm insulted? What if I'm humiliated by someone else? I am to treat people with respect, but what if I'm not treated with respect? I am to be a person of my word, but what if others are not honest with us? Jesus addresses the issue of how we are to respond when people do not treat us as we are in fact supposed to treat them. Now, the background, again, is from the Old Testament. And here Jesus is talking, he begins by talking with something from the Old Testament that is known, the, known as the principle of exact retribution. The Latin phrase is lex talionis. Um, let me read to you just a few verses from Exodus. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. And then in Leviticus, if anyone injures his neighbor, whatever he has done must be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has injured the other, so he is to be injured. Whoever kills an animal must make must make retribution. I'm sorry, restitution. But whoever kills a man must be put to death. And then again in Deuteronomy 19, show no pity, life for eye, life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth hand for hand, foot for foot. This is the principle of justice that we find in the Old Testament. And it lays out justice, I think, in two very important ways. First of all, it specifies that when somebody has done wrong, they are to be punished. You just don't say, well, yeah, that, whatever. You know, we just don't brush it off. That if somebody does something wrong, they are to be punished. But secondly, the punishment is to be limited. Okay? Now, oftentimes when people read what I've just read, it sounds to them to be very cruel. It sounds very harsh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You know. But stop and think a minute. It, in fact, limits what you can do. So if, in fact, somebody has gouged out your eye, you can't kill that person. Okay. 
the punishment is in fact to match the crime. It is not to go beyond. And if you look, for example, at the Babylonian legal code in the ancient world, if a contractor built a building and it collapsed and people were killed, not only was he to be killed, but his entire family. Okay? God's law is, if you kill someone, you in fact must be put to death. It is not, if you kill someone, your whole family has to be put to death. So what we find in this system of justice is that there is a definition of justice, there is to be punishment, but there is also a restraining of revenge. You might want to kill a man's whole family for what he has done, but no, you cannot do that. If somebody gouges out your eye, you may want to kill them, but no, you cannot. There is a limit to the punishment that can be exacted. What we find, in fact, is that there could be compensation. So if, in fact, I accidentally gouged out your eye, they, you wouldn't have to gouge out my eye. I could make final uh, financial uh, um, com- uh, compensation. I could give you money to pay for that. But there were limits. So there is such a thing as what is wrong, and there is also a limit to the punishment that can be exacted. The law of God does not give us the right of revenge. In fact, in Leviticus, it says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against one of your people. Next part, but love your neighbor as yourself. Okay. So it is not justice. You know, we're not supposed to get revenge on our own. That's up to the courts. It's up to the judges. But we are, in fact, to love our neighbor as ourselves. By the time that Jesus came into the world, uh, the literal retaliation for, uh, for injustices or for damages had been replaced by penalties and damages. So if you break somebody's hand, you have to pay X amount. If, if you break a tooth, you have to pay X amount. This is what people were used to. But, interestingly enough, it hadn't been limited to the courts, like you need to go to court, but it had become the realm of personal revenge, that I get to determine what you owe me. So if you do something to me, then you meet with my family, and then we sort of negotiate and bargain how much it is that you have to give me. It had been removed from the courts, and it had come to the individual, that the individual would decide what was just. We've been blaming the Pharisees for a lot these past few weeks. But I think even without the Pharisees, there is something in the human heart that wants revenge. We want revenge. That's just the way that we are. And what Jesus affirms here in speaking of this principle is that it is not applicable to our personal relationships. That is to say, I do not have the right if you break my tooth, to break your tooth. That is not something that is given to me. It's given to the court system, to the judicial system, to the community at large, but not to me as an individual. On an individual level, I'm to be guided by love, not by justice. I think during the time of Jesus, I would argue that much as it is today, people wanted revenge. And so they like the idea of justice, 
but they like the idea of personal justice rather than loving one another. I think one way to begin to see this as we should is to think in terms of family or friends. You see, if a stranger does something to us, I think we're more likely to seek revenge. But if a family member accidentally does something because of our affection, because of our relationships, we are less likely to seek justice. Or if it's someone who is a close personal friend. Jesus here tells us this is the way we are to treat all people in our personal relationships. We are not to seek justice, but we are to be guided by love. Jesus gives four examples of injuries that we may suffer and how we are supposed to respond. They all could come under the heading of your honor being injured. That is somehow somebody has offended you um, and not in a, not simply by words, but they've actually physically assaulted you. How are you supposed to respond to this? If you look at verse number 39, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We have two statements here. The first one basically is the principle, do not resist an evil person. And then the second statement, in fact, provides context and gives us an example. Um, If someone strikes you, Jesus says, you'll notice he doesn't say if someone strikes your neighbor or if someone strikes someone in your family. But if someone strikes you, this is the issue here. If something happens to me personally, what am I supposed to do? Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. What does it mean to resist? Uh, To to oppose, to withstand, uh, to take a stand against? It's interesting that the word that Jesus uses is used in different ways in the New Testament. It is used speaking of opposing the truth. In 2 Timothy, just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth. And also in 2 Timothy, talking about Alexander the metal worker, he strongly opposed our message. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here. Um, How about answering the truth? Not only standing in opposition, but answering the truth. Jesus says, I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. The Spirit will give them the words and no one could answer them. In fact, this happened with Stephen as he was speaking before the Sanhedrin. They could not stand up against his wisdom. But there's another way in which it's used that is somewhat puzzling. Here it means resisting the evil one and all all the powers of evil. Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. I think we know this passage. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and and after you have done everything, to stand. That is, you oppose the evil one. In James chapter 4, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil. There he is. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. In 1 Peter, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour Resist him. Why why do I say it's puzzling? Well, because Jesus said, don't resist an evil person, and yet here we're told that we are to resist the evil one. Um, By the way, before we get too carried away, what's the contradiction? You will notice that Jesus acknowledges that there are evil people in the world. I think there are many today who who might not uh, accept that. You may remember after 9-11, President Bush 
uh, referred to the evil that these people had done and referred to them as evildoers. And at least in the academy and universities, people were outraged. They thought this is, you can't use that word. Evil is a four-letter word. You can't use that. Um, and I probably told you the story that I think it was at Rutgers. There was a panel and there were four faculty members talking about 9-11. And one of them realized, boy, these other three don't think the way I do. And he asked them, were these evil men? And they would not acknowledge that. And then he played the trump card that everyone does. And he said, what about Hitler? Was Hitler evil? And they, wouldn't, they would not acknowledge that. Jesus tells us that there are such, thing as evil, such things as evil people in the world. So, Jesus says that we are not to resist the evil person. Um, is this an absolute statement? That in any and every situation I am not to resist? I would suggest to you that it is not. Rather, Jesus gives us four scenarios in which we are not to resist. And even these, as we'll see, I would argue are not absolute. The first scenario is when someone insults your honor by a physical slap on the cheek. Verse 39. If someone strikes you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. Why so specific? You mean if somebody hits me on the left cheek, then I can punch their lights out? Why is it the, left, the right cheek? Because for someone to hit me on the right cheek, if they are right-handed, they have to do so with the back of their hand. Okay? Which means it is a deliberate attempt to humiliate me. It's not necessarily to cause physical pain. It may, in fact, do that. But it is more an attempt to embarrass me, to humiliate me, to degrade me in some way. Jesus would, in fact, be our example in this. In the Old Testament prophecy we read, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. In Matthew's account, before Jesus was put to death, then they spit in his face and struck him with their fist. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Christ, who hit you? Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. Peter tells us, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We are to obey his command. We are to follow his example pastor of the 19th century put it this way we are to be as the anvil as when bad men are the hammers you know when an anvil when you hit when people humiliate us either literally or figuratively we are not to retaliate so does this mean and this is the hard part are we to be doormats are we to let people treat us as they want 
when I was younger, there was a pastor in one of our provincial churches, and somebody came after him with a machete, with a bolo. And, you know, the pastor was ducking and running away from him, and the, the guy with the bolo said, wait a minute, you're supposed to turn the other cheek. You know, why, why won't you let me, you know, hit you with this? Um, I don't think that Jesus is calling for weakness. I don't think he's calling for passivity. Rather, I think he's calling for us to follow his example. Jesus was a strong man. He was in control of himself, and he loved those who, in fact, were doing these things to him. His love for them was so powerful that he rejected any form of retaliation. We are to follow his example. The only limit on my response should be the limit that love puts on it. The point that Jesus is making here is when somebody seeks to humiliate me, my answer is not to respond or to retaliate or get revenge. It is, in fact, to love that person. The second scenario involves unfair litigation in verse number 40. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. That someone is the evil person. They take you to court. They want to sue you. They want to take your tunic. It is the inner robe. Uh, Jews of that time had the tunic and then the cloak on the outside. And Jesus says, this person takes you to court because they're suing you. You can't sue without a court. And they want, they say to the judge, I want his inner robe. And Jesus says, fine, let them have that and your outer robe or your cloak as well. Now, it's interesting that Jesus mentions the cloak because in the Old Testament law, the cloak was to be used as collateral. And it was not to be kept overnight. If somebody gives a cloak for collateral, that's what he sleeps in. You better give it back to him at night so he'll have something to keep him warm. I don't think Jesus is to be taken literally here. That is, you know, take off all your clothes and give it to the person. Rather, I think what he's saying is that you are not the judge. There's someone in the court system. But you are the person who is to respond in love, not revenge. You are to give them more than what they want. We are to allow ourselves to be wronged. Really? I, it sounds good. It doesn't sound like something I want to do. And yet this is the call of Christ. We are to give more than what is demanded. We are not to hold too tightly onto our possessions. The third scenario is a historical situation. Verse 41, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. During the time of Jesus, the Romans were in control of Palestine. They were an occupying force. Um, The Jews were the colonial subjects. And by law, every Roman soldier had the right to go up to a Jew and say... I want you to carry my, my shield, my luggage. You have, and by law, you had to do it for one mile. That's why Jesus talks about carrying it a mile, going a mile. And Jesus says, listen, if they do that, go two miles. Okay? Don't just do it. And by the way, a Roman soldier could travel from Caesarea, from the coast all the way to Jerusalem, just get enough Jews lined up, and you know, one mile, okay, you're next, one mile. And that way, the soldiers wouldn't have to carry anything themselves. Jesus says, no, don't, whatever people want, give them even more. Because we don't respond with justice or revenge, but with love. Then the fourth scenario involves giving. 
Verse 42, give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. I'm not sure, to be honest, who is the person in mind here. Are we still talking about the evil person? That the evil person wants money from you? Um, I, I tend to think an evil person wouldn't want to borrow from you. They would just steal from you. They would just take from you. So this may be a friend. Uh, or maybe someone you don't know that well. But in any case, uh, it is someone who is in need. They haven't wronged you. They haven't done anything against you. They simply want something from you. And in fact, they may not return it. They may not pay back what they have borrowed from you. So, is Jesus saying, okay, here's the good news. Here's the kingdom of heaven. Let people treat you like dirt. Let them walk all over you. Let, be a doormat. Let people do to you whatever they want. Is this what it means to be a Christian? Is this what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Is there no justice for us? I would say that there is justice for us, if not on this, in this lifetime, but certainly in the life to come. God still believes in justice. He still believes in retribution. But we are not to seek revenge or justice on our own. In our personal relationships, it isn't up to me to say, listen, that person did something wrong to me and I'm going to get revenge. That, in fact, belongs to somebody else altogether. In Romans 12, Paul writes, and you might want to turn there because I'm going to read a lengthy passage. In Romans 12, uh, beginning in verse number 14, Paul says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Verse 16, live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Verse 17, here in Romans 12. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. This, by the way, is from Deuteronomy 32. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And then verse number 21, the end of the chapter. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, because we have the Bible as it is today, we have verses and chapter divisions. It's how we're able to find things. But when Paul wrote this, there wasn't. So the very next verse, what, is what we call Romans 13, says everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. So I'm not to respond with evil. There is, in fact, a court system. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. Now look at verse number 4, if you're there in Romans 13. For he, that is the government official, is God's servant to do you good. That's an amazing statement. I don't know about you, but I don't usually think of government officials or police officers or the judges as God's servants. Paul says they are. 
But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant. A second time in this verse, Paul tells us that. An agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So we are not to seek justice apart from the governing authorities. The governing authorities have they've been given that job by God. They've been given the sword. That means punishment. They are to bring justice to the world. But in our personal relationships, we are to be governed by love. It is love that is to direct what we do, not justice. But I tell you what, this is so much easier said than done. It might be helpful if we make a distinction in our lives between the public us, if you wish, and the private us. The public, let's say, you work at a place. Okay? You work at an office, either you're the employer or the employee, and you're supposed to be paid X amount of money. And the person who has hired you does not pay you what, in fact, they have promised you. Well, we have a, we have a court system where, in fact, you can go to court and say, listen, this person owes me money that they have promised me. But if in your private life you have been offended, you have been humiliated, uh, you've been degraded for your faith, for being a Christian, or you have, you've given money, you've lent money to a friend who refuses to repay, that's not what the court system is for, Jesus tells us. There we are to respond in love and not in justice. We are not to retaliate. Love should motivate our actions and not the desire for revenge or for justice. But this is hard. Jesus calls us to respond in love. And we see in him the supreme example. In Isaiah 53, 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before the shearers of silence, so he did not open his mouth. It is remarkable. And as Jesus was on the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So then the question is, am I to have no justice in my life? Let's forget me. Is there not to be any justice in society? Are we as God's people not to be concerned with justice? Absolutely we are. God is the judge. He is the final judge. And we are to be people who seek justice for other people. For those who are on the outside, those who are weak, the fatherless, the widows, the poor, the oppressed, the alien... We, in fact, are to fight for them for justice, but not for ourselves. We do it for them because we love them. We don't do it for ourselves because the person who has wronged us, we are to love them as well. God has ordained that there be governments, and that they are there to protect the citizens. They are there to protect the non-citizens. They are to punish wrongdoers. They are to maintain peace and justice. So I'm not to take that into my own hands. And you know what? This is, this is easy, I would say, for me to say, but if somebody did something against someone in my family, I think it would be very hard for me to say, well, we have a judicial system. You know, we have judges, we have the police. And no, I think there is something within us that says, I will take this into my own hands. We are not to respond seeking revenge, but with love. 
Justice is not what is to dominate our thinking with regard to ourselves. And by the way, neither it is, is it to dominate our thinking with regard to others. What is to dominate our thinking is love. Why do I seek justice for these people? Because I love them. And why do I not seek justice for myself? Because I love these people who have done something wrong against me. It is because of love that we turn the other cheek, that we allow ourselves to be wronged, that we go the extra mile, as the expression goes, that we lend freely. I would add, though, that there are times when we do not turn the other cheek, because to do so enables the other person. It doesn't really help them. When we don't allow ourselves to be wronged, we don't allow ourselves to be abused, we will not go the extra mile or lend freely because this, in fact, would not be showing love to an evil person. See, love redirects us, and that is its function, I think, its purpose, away from being self-centered. It is when I am guided by love that I think about others. I don't think about myself, that I seek to serve God and not myself. When you look at the parents we have here in our congregation, and if you could sit down and listen to their stories about the nights that they went without sleep, uh, or got very little sleep, uh, it is love that caused them to think more of the child than themselves. It is love that directed them to say, I need to take care of this child. There is such love for this child that it's like, yeah, of course they're tired. They haven't gotten a lot of sleep. But that's secondary. What is primary is this child. And this is the love that we are to have for our neighbors. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. So when it comes to justice, we are to be warriors for justice for others because we love them. When it comes to justice in our lives, that's completely secondary because we love those who have done something against us. I remember hearing the story of uh, a family in Canada whose teenage daughter um, was kidnapped and was missing for uh, quite a while. And eventually her body was found. Uh, she had been kidnapped by a sexual predator and had been abused and, and murdered. And when the police came and told her parents, her parents responded and said, who is this man? We must love him. We must show our love for this person. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. We are to show love. It's not to be about us. It isn't to be about revenge. Yes, we want the widow and the fatherless to be protected. Those who are poor, those who don't have legal standing, we want to protect them. Because we love them. It's love before justice. It's always love before justice. And if that's the way we act toward others... When they are in need, then when we have been humiliated, when we've been wronged, when people abuse us, 
It's always love before justice. So we turn the other cheek. We give them our cloak. We go the extra mile. We lend freely. But as I said, that is not always what we're supposed to do. There are times when we need to take a stand and say, no, I will not allow you to continue to do this. How do I know where that line is? How do I know when I'm supposed to do certain things and not others? We have to go back to the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. We need the Spirit of God to direct us, to guide us in our decisions. On our own, we won't know what to do, because on our own, we want revenge. But we are to have hearts that are filled with love. And I'm convinced if we do, then by the grace of God, the Spirit of God can direct us to do what we should do. It won't be easy. It's never easy. But we're not alone. Let's pray together. Father, frankly, there are certain parts of your word that we would rather skip. Because in many ways they don't make a lot of sense to us. Why should we allow people to strike us? Or to sue us wrongfully? To force us to do things we don't want to do? And yet, what we see is that you're calling us to be people of love. Not to think first and foremost of my rights, what are my rights, but that I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, even an evil neighbor, even a neighbor who strikes me or who sues me. Who wants me to do more than I should do? And frankly, Father, on our own, we're just, we cannot do this. We are human. Revenge, retaliation comes so quickly to mind. But by your Spirit, as your children, may we be people of love. May we love you with all our being. And may we love our neighbors ourselves. And may it be here with your people that we practice love. And then as we leave this place, day by day, moment by moment, by your spirit, we show love for those around us, even those who are evil, even those who would do us wrong. You are the final judge. And one day all people will stand before you and all things will be made right. Help us to trust you. May we be not hearers only, but doers of your word by your spirit. Thank you for bringing us together. Pray for Tom and Anne as they travel. You give them safety. We pray for Mabet. Give the doctors wisdom. And we pray that you would heal her and raise her up. 
May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.